really data is like the cost of the experiment. So we're going to collect data and each data point provides a bit of information for help, helping us answer our question to reduce our uncertainty. So the larger the sample we take, the less uncertainty we have in our results and our estimates. Welcome to the Technical Marketing Handbook, a podcast with words, sentences, and scattered thoughts about digital marketing. In today's episode, we are talking about experimentation, and I finally have a guest to join me. So enjoy the show. Welcome to the Technical Marketing Handbook podcast. I'm your host, Simo Ahaba. In analytics, we collect data and then we analyze this collected data with the hope of deriving insight or inspiration from something we find in the data set. This is, of course, a very valuable methodology for understanding something about what happened in the past, or in the case of predictions, what might happen in the future. I mean, the alternative of not using data at all would put your product and service development success into the hands of pure experience and intuition. And while this is often very successful as well, especially if there's an abundance of experience and intuition, it does create many weak links in the organization and can lead to chaos when designing long-term goals for the business. One problem with the approach of data collection and analysis is that it's often very tempting to look at data and retroactively apply a hypothesis to it. You know, we might see an increase in uh, conversions and immediately attribute this uplift to a marketing campaign that happened concurrently. Or we might not see any fluctuation in the data at all until we segment it and twist and turn it until it gives us a favorable response. However, this is often prone to lead to failure. Applying hypotheses retroactively or analyzing data that wasn't collected purposefully is really an exercise in correlation, more often than not, rather than causality. Even though sometimes correlation is causal, it's extremely difficult to figure out whether some phenomenon that's apparent in the data is due to a specific set of circumstances or something completely different. The signal is often drowned in noise. And this is where the art of controlled experimentation provides relief. Experimentation is really a subset of statistical inference and applications of the scientific method, just like analytics is, and just like business intelligence, for example, is as well. We're still working with data, and we're still trying to figure out the answers to difficult and burning business questions. But with experimentation, we establish a hypothesis before we collect the data. We collect the data with a purpose from a specific and hopefully representative subset of users. And we analyze this data solely to find out if we managed to prove the initial hypothesis right. The most popular form of experimentation is called A-B testing. It's the subset of experimentation with the most tools, most resources, and most experts available, and it's often the easiest to realize technologically for many organizations, and usually leads to results that are somewhat simple to interpret, even for a statistics layperson. With an A-B test, you formulate a hypothesis that applies to a subset of your site users. The hypothesis usually includes a metric that you want to improve or change. For example, a hypothesis could be that for mobile users that enter our checkout, the new single-page checkout will yield a larger percentage of users who converted to buyers versus the original multi-page checkout funnel. To run the test, you need to decide how large a sample of visitors should be included in the test and for how long the test should run. There are calculators available for helping you figure this stuff out, but what you are essentially aiming for is having enough data to reduce the margin of error in the result. In other words, the larger the sample of data you have, the more probable it is that the result of the test is not due to random chance. 
The test itself is set up typically so that 50% of the sample included in the test is randomly shown the control or the original version of whatever is being tested and the other 50% is randomly shown the treatment or the version you are hypothesizing is an improvement over the original. Once the test has run its duration, the results are analyzed through statistical methods in hopes of arriving at one of three results. One, the original version shows a conclusive result of being better than the treatment. Two, the treatment version shows a conclusive result of being better than the original. Or three, there is no conclusive result available with the size of the dataset collected thus far. It's impossible to say with significance whether the treatment or the original is better. Obviously, this is a very, very complicated discipline, and A-B tests are really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to statistical inference and analytic methods in general. To help us understand the importance of scientific methods in everyday analytics and experimentation, I'm very happy to introduce my guest, Matt Gershoff of Conductrix. Matt is one of the most prolific experts in the experimentation scene. With his business partner, Nate Wise, they've built the Conductrix platform. Conductrix is one of the most impressive testing platforms in existence with a deliberate engineering approach of promoting transparency and modularity over black boxes and magically generated results. I first met Matt while drinking mulled wine on a mountaintop in Hungary some seven years ago. In my discussions with him over the years, I've learned to appreciate his extremely thorough approach to pretty much everything, ranging from analytics to whiskey tasting, from classical literature to Chomsky and linguistics, and from product development to interacting with customers and industry representatives in workshops, conferences, and smaller meetups. In this podcast, Matt and I talk about experimentation, not just from the point of view of how to do it, but also how it sits in the modern organization and how experimentation applies to product and service development. But before we head on over to the interview, please enjoy these words from our sponsor. Are you a marketing or a data professional looking to skill up? Take a look at the online courses Simmer has to offer at teamsimmer.com. The courses are completely self-paced and your enrollment will grant you lifetime access to the material, including any updates. Go to teamsimmer.com and use the coupon code HANDBOOK to get 10% off your course purchase. That's teamsimmer.com. Matt Gershoff from Conductrix, could you please explain what A-B testing is and how it can be used to drive business growth? Hey, Simo, sure. And thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Um, so I think it's useful, um, before we talk about what A-B testing is, um, first maybe talk about what problem we're trying to solve. And so at a very high level, the highest level of sort of abstraction, is um, we're really trying to figure out the path between cause and effect. And so the the problem that we the problem that we have where we'll use A-B testing is when we're trying to um, understand causality as opposed to correlation. And so um, let's use um, COVID-19 vaccines as an example. And so when companies are coming, say Pfizer or Moderna or um, what have you, the various the various manufacturers of the, the vaccines, they want to answer, or society wants to answer the question is, does the COVID-19 vaccine, does this particular vaccine cause a reduction in severe disease, right? So is it by having this treatment, does it lead to less severe di disease? Right. However, however, that's defined. So we have a specific endpoint, which is reduction in severe disease. And then we have a treatment, which is the, the taking of the vaccine. Now, the, the issue um, that one has is when they're trying to evaluate the efficacy of, say, the vaccine treatment, 
this case, is one of confounding. And that happens when, or that can happen when the user, the individual, the person receiving the vaccine, takes part in deciding whether or not they get the vaccine or the treatment. And so let's just like, as an example, let's say rather than, um, rather than running the experiments that they did run, they just had it so that you could go in or you visit whenever you're visiting your doctor and the doctor said, Hey, there's a, uh, a, a vaccine that's come out. It's, it's under trial. We don't, we don't know whether or not it works or not. Do you want to take it? And you could say, yeah, sure. I'll take that vaccine. And you sign up and they keep track of you and they know whether you got the vaccine. Or you might say, nah, I don't think I want to try that. And then they register that you said no. And then they take a look and see down the road whether or not you wound up in the hospital or not, wound up on a ventilator or or what have you. Now, the problem with that is that because the individual is deciding whether is, is having an impact on the assignment of the vaccine, is that it could very well be that the types of people, certain types of people might be more likely to have severe disease. And those people may or may not be more likely to take the vaccine. So for example, if older people decided to say, yeah, I'm definitely going to try to take that vaccine, and younger people were much less likely to take the vaccine, then you could have a case where the, the, the vaccine is... Um, is very effective. It could potentially be, in reality, a very effective vaccine. But because all of the people who've taken the vaccine are old, and all the people who haven't taken the vaccine are young, it looks like the vaccine is not very effective, right? Because you've confounded the fact that older people are much more likely a priori to get sick from the disease, um, that it looks like maybe the, the vaccine has no efficacy. And the inverse is true. It says, let's say the younger people all decide to take the vaccine and the older people are more risk adverse than like, I don't want to take that vaccine. Then it might look like it, an ineffective vaccine, something that does nothing. Um, it looks like it has some sort of efficacy because at the end, the end points are, hey, look, people who take the, took the vaccine were much less likely to get sick. And so that's Kind of the problem that we have with traditional analytics is that, you know, we're, when we're just basically collecting data anyway, and then we're trying to look back at that data and decide whether or not some sort of change that we made or some sort of um, intervention um, has led to some sort of change in customer behavior, um, we're not really sure because the customers kind of decided what path they're going to flow through your website or through um, you know, through the app or, or what have you. And so the reason why we do an A-B test is that we're trying to break that problem of confounding. We're trying to be, target the effect of the treatment on the endpoint or on the, the change in behavior away from the factors or attributes of, of the users that might also be contributing to differences in that, in that measurement. So really, an A-B test is is exactly the same as um, what's known as an RCT or a randomly controlled trial, which is what we use for, say, establishing the efficacy of vaccine. And so what, so what do we do with an RCT or with an A-B test? So an A-B test, really all we're doing is rather than letting the, the end user decide what treatment to get, it's... We decide. So we can control. And by controlling the assignment, it helps us control all of the the noise variables, all the other influences that might occur. So we can just focus on the treatment. And the way to do that, or the simplest way to do that, is through a random assignment. So the fact that each individual is randomly allocated, so the selection mechanism to treatment and control or various treatments for each user or each unit is done randomly, which controls for or breaks any um, spillover effect from attributes of the user, which might confuse us into thinking that the, the effect of the treatment was um, large or small or not effective at all. So the whole point of running an A-B test is to answer a question of causality. Does our intervention or does our treatment lead to a change in customer behavior. 
And that type of causal relationship, we can't do. I'll take that back. It's very diff- It's much more difficult to do with you know our, our basic analytic setup. And so when we're running an A/B test, we're really just running one of these RCTs, and it requires. You know, there's really three main components. You could think of it as three main components. The first is that we want to have the question at hand. Like we need to know what what question, what ex- explicit question are we trying to answer? So um, does this new product feature lead to greater customer engagement? So that's the question. And then unlike traditional analytics where we already have the data, we're just sort of passively collecting the data anyway, here we have to be more intentional. And part of the design of the experiment is the collection process. So we're going to say, okay, in order to answer this specific question, we're now going to go out and collect this data to help us answer that question, right? This question of causality. Does the new product feature lead to a change in customer behavior? Is there greater engagement? And then third, we have to decide on what type of analysis we're going to run. And usually there's, you know, certain types of analysis that are fairly, the simplest ones are, your, you know, what you basically see is the sort of usually like a Pearson-Nyman A-B test, um, T-test, that type of thing. Um, but that's also part of the decision-making process. In our, in our design of the experiment, we really want to have those three things. And, you know, what's really interesting is that it, the A-B test is really about answering these causal questions. It isn't per se, an engine for growth. It's just, it is valuable to know causality so that we can then apply that learning as almost like a tuning knob or a, 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 you know, a way of intervening into the environment or into our marketing system or application to affect customer behavior, which is, you know, that in of itself can be quite useful. But of course, the, the value is only going to come if you're asking the right question. So really, ultimately, if you step back, the main value in this is that it provides a formal um, procedural way for you to disentangle all of the possible things that, can af- that affect your measurement of consumer behavior so that you can just home in on the effect of the treatment of interest. And that's, that's really what an A-B test is. Thanks for that walkthrough. What would you say, I mean, in in analytics, in general analytics as well, I think people appreciate that figuring out the question is the most difficult part, figuring out something that's actually meaningful and digs deep into the business needs. But putting that aside for a second, how do you you know what type of data to collect? How do you know what type of analysis to run? Are there formal approaches to this or does it come through experience or does the tool dictate the type of approach you need to take? Yeah. So there, there are, there are, um, formal methods and approaches. So, you know, you may have heard, um, you know, people throwing around terms like frequentist and Bayesian methods and whatnot. And there are a set from statistics, um, epidemiology from econometrics. There are standard approaches for answering these types of questions. Now, I said that the analysis part is, um, you know, something that we, we decide. But normally for A-B tests in sort of marketing applications, they're usually of the same type of problem, which is we have a control. We usually have one. Maybe there's a couple of different treatments um, that we're trying, we're trying out versus the control. We're usually asking a superiority type of test where does this treatment perform better than the control, right? And so there are certain... Um, standard tests that one can run and are normally embedded in uh, A-B testing software. Um, and that's usually what the, the A-B testing software provides. So you have the general problem of we're trying to learn a causal relationship. The, there are tools out there like Conductrix or there are other products out there that provide you know, the tools and some of these analysis built in for these common use cases. And so you can run, you know, they help you run your experiment, but it's still up to you to know like what it is you're trying to determine um, and whether it's a good question or not. So you say, put it aside, but you know, sometimes people just 
they think the act of running an experiment in of itself is going to provide value. So it's like we have our experimentation program and we want to run a thousand experiments. And that, um, you know, I, that, that concerns me because unless you have a good theory, like the, the whole um, idea of an experimentation program as opposed to an experiment. I know we were just talking about an experiment, but that, the value is really in the program. It's kind of like the difference between an ant and the ant colony. You know, the, 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 it's the ant colony where emergent intelligence comes from. Like the ant colony you can kind of see is like behaving intelligently, responding to its environment and sort of optimizing to its environment as opposed to an individual ant. And sort of like that with, it's a, not an exact analogy, but it's sort of like that with an experimentation program where you're doing this at scale. And it's really the application of the scientific method to business decisions. And by the scientific method, I mean, one has a theory and your theory is really a theory about your customer. You need to kind of understand your customer demand and what they're interested in and what types of interventions you believe the customer is going to care about. You know, sort of like their elasticity of demands, like how will the demand change um, given some sort of intervention? And by intervention, I mean button color, text, product, price, what have you. And, you know, if you don't have a theory that says probably button color is going to affect demand a lot less than price, right? Like if you don't even, if you don't have a good theory of your customer, um, you know, the things that you're going to be testing probably are going to have a low likelihood of having any efficacy. It's just like with the case of the COVID-19 uh, vaccines, they, there's a lot of exploratory and theoretical research that went into why they believed um, the RNA vaccines might have efficacy, why it might work. There was a theory behind it. And then they ran the experiment to confirm to see whether or not there actually was real-world efficacy. If they were just randomly generating molecules or biologics or what have you, and then just testing it out, at the end of the year or two years, they probably would still not come up with anything, no matter how many they tried out. And so it's really got to be guided experimentation, um, and it's, it's got to be iterative. So you have your theory, you run an experiment to test the theory, and then you update your theory based upon the results. So it's this ongoing iterative process. And I think that's where the value lies. Do you think this should kind of leak into the, the regular type of analytics work? Do you think that tools like Google Analytics, Adobe Analytics, do you think they should do a better job with the statistical side of things in general? Because it seems to me like many times people look retrospectively at data and then apply hypotheses to that the data that's already being collected and they try to infer meaning and they try to look at a conversion rate uplift and say that this probably happened because of this and this but should the tools guide them to make these kind of like better because this sounds to me like a very bad approach it sounds like you're 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 trying to create history where none exists yeah i don't know if that's a bad approach i think it's just I think the well, ultimately, I don't think it's the response. First of all, I would say, and this we may we may break on this. It's not solely the responsibility of the tools to ensure that the analyst knows what their job is. Mm. Um, and that may sound a little harsh, but really, the analyst should have certain abstractions and understanding about statistical inference, uh, about induction, about learning in general. Uh, about the probabilistic nature of the role of the of the learnings, um, and they they should understand. They should. I would think it would be valuable to undo have some understanding about the abstractions of experimentation, about the abstractions of inference, about the about the notion of generalizing from observed data into data that we haven't seen or experiences that we haven't seen. And the sort of the issues that can that can crop up. I, I just think the you know I, I don't want to speak for for GA or for for the other tools and whether they have st stats in there is not the problem. And that's that's what I mean. It's like the it's the data. It's the having it's collecting the data 
for this question. And it's the, the, the analysis in the back end is in a way the least, in, I don't want to say it's the least important, but in a way it is the least important. Whether you use a Bayesian approach or frequent approach, that, that doesn't really matter. Or you don't use any, you just look at what's bigger, right? I, I feel like the statistical analysis or the type of analysis is less important than the design of the experiment. And it's the collecting the data and the assignment. It's how have we assigned the user to the experience? Like how, how have they gotten allocated? And was it through us? Did we do the assignment? Or did we let the user in some way partially or fully make the assignment? And if they're the ones who are deciding what treatment they get into, then it is very difficult to, to break the effect of these confounders, these other effects that will, um, that will pick up in our measurement of the, the, the behavior or the endpoint. So, you know, they could put in whatever statistical method they want, but if the data is collected, is not collected in the appropriate way, it, it won't matter. Now, there are other ways of trying to establish causal effects. Um, and in fact, just a couple of days ago, the, the, the Nobel Prize in Economics just went to, um, you know, three economists. Their work was on natural experiments. And so most of econometrics, an entire, you know, the entire field, subfield of economics, econometrics, is about using statistical methods when one can't perform an RCT or an A-B test and try to induce the causal effects from data or from, from experiments where the experimenter did not get to assign the user to the treatment. So that, that really is the key thing. It's about how has the user been assigned to the treatment under investigation. That's the kernel of it. And if we're using an RCT where we've done the random assignment, then we can use fairly simple methods. You can use like a t-test, or if you're a Bayesian, you can use um, the um, uh, Bayes factors or you know, whatever approach. That, that, I mean, people get worked up about that, but really for these simple types of experiments, it doesn't really matter. And in fact, I shouldn't say it doesn't really matter. It's a second or third order problem uh, or issue. And in fact, if you were to do a, 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 you know, a frequentist t-test and a Bayesian Bayes factor, or maybe you're calculating the posterior probabilities and doing some Monte Carlo method over that and calculating the, the probability that each one is best. If those disagreed, that's when you're kind of like, eh, maybe I'm in like, maybe we don't really know. Maybe that's something to consider that maybe this is not a very robust result. Because in most cases, when there's a strong result, they'll all agree. They'll all agree, at least directionally, on what the, what the right course of action is. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how helpful it would be to add. I think it actually might make it worse because then you would think that you're doing something more sophisticated. Yeah. But really, you're not. And yeah. unless you understand you know, how the assignment was done and whether or not you could use some of these approaches from econometrics and these natural experiments, like being, um, there's different diff approaches, there's instrumental variables, um, there's um, discontinuity designs. Like there's, there, there are other approaches. I don't want to imply that it's only R, uh, RCTs or AB tests where one can uh, learn causal relationships. Um, but those other approaches, you kind of, it's even more um, important for the experimenter to understand even more deeply how things work. It's um, my wife's aunt is a pediatric um, anesthesiologist, so it's like that is a very um, highly skilled role, and you don't want to mess it up because you've got kids that you're putting under. And I think in her state, when she was still practicing. Um, she's retired now, and she's probably, I think there's only two in the state, um, relatively rural state. And I was talking, I was like, oh, my God, that, your job must be a nightmare. It must be completely exhausting. And, uh, you know, every time you're going to work, she goes, actually, you know, most of the time, you know, a, you know, uh, a robot could do it. Most of the time, it, you know, if everything goes well, it's simple. There's only a few things to 
And she's probably exaggerating a little bit, but she's saying it was relatively simple. It's not really that complex. But she said when things don't go properly is when you have to have extremely, extremely deep knowledge of how everything works. And I think that's true of analytics. It's like a lot of times it, it, it's kind of set it and forget it, but you have to have a deep understanding of the abstractions um, in order to see, well, wait, actually, maybe this isn't working properly and to diagnose the problem and to correct for it. And that's where the, the value is, I think, as an analyst. So long-winded, I, I don't know. I don't know if just having more statistical approaches would actually help or if it would have unintended consequences of having people think that they're correcting for something, but the, the way the data was collected inherently means that it doesn't matter. They're already in a problem. I think that's a, I think that's a really good point and a very good answer to that. I think that like my, my own personal view has been that um, there's so many moving parts into getting data into those reports. It's it's rarely a, a, a viable abstraction or even a good representative sample of your visitors. There are so many things that can screw things up, technical details that can be messed up, configuration settings somewhere, seasonality that wasn't taken into account. And if if the tool were to kind of pick up these signals and turn them into something bigger than that than they really are, it can really really too kind of misleading or confusing decisions from the organization. But I mean, but if you, but if you SEMO know how you understand that there's um, potential non-stationarity in the data and you are managing the system, which could include GA or tool or whatever, or our tool, whatever, it doesn't matter, then it might be useful. It's not that it, it it's just, it requires, I think it requires an analyst to guide it and to like understand how the process works, where the edge cases might be. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, there could be cases where it's effective. I mean, it might be useful. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you're thinking of. Um, but I think analytics is useful. Analytics. I, I think kind of the classic passive data collection, sorry, collect everything uh, just in case. I kind of think of that as sort of like just in the standard approach is sort of just in case data collection. And maybe we'll need this data versus what we're doing here for an experimentation or A-B test. It's more just in time. It's just in time data collection. So we have a particular, we're going to collect data when we have a particular question that pops up that we want to answer. And then we'll go out and collect it. Um, but I think, you know, the class, I don't want to say classical approach, but the more observational approach, I should say, is useful for just, just like when you're running your, um, you know, trying to create the new vaccines that you were doing prior science or research, and then you run the experiment to confirm or try to see whether or not there's actually that causal effect. And that's the same thing when you know, your analytics, you're getting some results, and then maybe you want to test it. Hey, it looks like, you know, for ideation, hey, it looks like in our results that, um, you know, when we added this new feature, things started to, to improve. Maybe we should go and confirm that. Maybe we should subject that hypothesis to a severe, strict test. And by severe test, those who are familiar, I'm, I'm referencing uh, Deborah Mayo. But maybe we want to su subject that. We believe that and it looks like that from our, the, from our analytics reporting. But, you know, again, we haven't run a formal experiment where we got to allocate or decide which users got what feature. And so maybe we want to run that experiment just to confirm that. So... You know, it works in harmony with it. It's in addition, it's not in substitution. They're complementary. And I think it's, they're both useful. It's just they're, they're really for different, different use cases. Pivoting slightly to using these um, approaches in organizations in general, one, I, I've met a type of archetype of people when, when working with experimentation programs, and it's typically in the, in the kind of hippo side of things, so a decision maker or somebody who's sitting on the budget and deciding things. Um, and I found kind of two approaches to, to tests, um, of like many, many approaches, but these two stand out in particular. And one is when in when a test has a clear answer and 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 can clearly say that say that with with certain degree of st statistical significance we have an, a result and um, called a winner maybe or or something that introduces uplift and still they 
decide to take another path, maybe because they have such a strong gut feeling or intuition about something and they decide to disregard the result of the of that experiment. And then the other type of approach is when you have uh, an answer that you're not happy with or a result that you're happy with, maybe it was a, it was a not inconclusive result, so there was no clear winner, you start kind of segmenting and wrangling that data. You start applying different types of cohorts to it. You, you separate the mobile users and the Facebook users until you find a segment for which the approach was good. And I, I find these over and over again. It just seems to me such a great disconnect between what was the question that was asked and finally what the analysis is. Have you kind of encountered these? Do you think there's something, again, from a from a tool designer's perspective, is there something you can do to kind of prevent this from happening or should it even be prevented? Those are two things. One, statistical inference, which is what we're doing here, right? We're, 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 we are the whole space of analytics, whether it's experimentation or it's observational data collection, which we're doing in the this, this sort of the standard tools. Hard, it's like a hard problem right we, it's inherently hard and so you know what we're doing is we're trying to make st- statements we're trying to learn from observation right which is induction we're trying to make learn general rules we're trying to generalize about the larger world the world we haven't seen yet from a small sample right of observations that we've seen okay and that actually is a hard problem and so one, as a software, someone who creates software to help answer these problems, I think maybe we're a little bit different, I think, than, than others in the market is that we're very explicit. This is just inherently hard. It's not, it's just not easy. Um, and I think one should go into it with their eyes wide open about this is just inherently difficult. And so let's be aware of that and build the tools and apply the tools given that let's it's not let's not think magically and for us though it's 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 this balance between making it easy um and reducing the friction of using the software and also not being paternalistic right because in a way you know we don't have i i am not in the environment of our customers and they have a lot of competing demands. They have a lot of things that they're trying to do. And this is just one small thing. And so while we try to build our software to put help guide them into what we believe, and again, this is our editorial about how we think should work, um, there's, a ba- there's a balance, right? There's a balance. And ultimately, it's, it's, it's the clients who have to, um, who have to like, do the hard work. And, that, and that's, in a way, it's good that it's hard because that's means they're providing value, right? If they're doing it right. If it's super easy, then they all lose their job and then it's just automated and then it, it doesn't matter. Um, but, but how do you- I think what you're talking about is there's two things. There's sort of, perver- I don't want to say it's, it's necessarily perverse incentives, but there's like incentive structures out there and the organization maybe is not, I guess I should step back and say experimentation is only effective experimentation is like a judiciary in a democracy or in a, in a country right and so you sort of have the executive maybe the, the legislate the legislative sort of munged together in parliamentary system or whatever you have like the executive and there's a judiciary which should be independent why should it be independent be, uh, it's independent because you want you don't want the results of the judiciary to just be what the current desire is of the executive. And that is exactly the same. I feel like that's exactly the same. It isn't exactly the same as your testing program. Your, your testing program is like your judiciary in your, your business. And they're trying to be dispassionate. It's only going to be effective as a means of establishing these causal relationships, right? Because that's what we're doing this for. It's only going to be effective in that role if it can be independent. And in the hippo case, where the executive, or in this case, the, 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 the main power, the influence in the organization is putting their finger on the scales, it starts to break the capacity of the experimentation program to act as um, 
the judiciary, which is to assess dispassionately whether the marginal efficacy of one choice or the other. But that that's going to happen. So yeah, so if if it is an independent, it just becomes sort of like a kangaroo court, and it's not you're not doing science anymore, and you're just doing rhetoric or you're doing. Um, but it's it's less it's less about the. The methodology of experimentation at that point is more about organizational maturity and communication structures and how different parts of the organization understand what different parts are doing. Yeah, it just right. becomes a rubber stamp. It's not effective. It's not doing its job. And right. so, but that, but if you're in that organization anyway, if you're in a punitive look, look it's it works best in a place that is not punitive, um, encourages calculated risks. I mean, the whole I think ultimately the value of an experimentation program is that it mitigates risk such that employees feel comfortable um, increasing sort of throughput of their ideas into product. That's, I mean, that, I mean, that's the value. That, I mean, that's an efficient company is one in which the ideas in editorial of its employees, who ostensibly are excellent employees, like that's the degree that you have employees who understand their customer and understand the product and the market, whatever. You want to get their ideas quickly um, in front of the customer. And so an experimentation program mitigates risk, right? It, is, it, 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 it provides a procedure or um, a process to get ideas into product. That's, that's the main thing. And so, you know, if you really have a a culture that is punitive and if like, oh, you, it, 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 this test didn't work, whatever that means, it's like the winner didn't work or my thing didn't work, you inhibit that. And so you failed, you failed from the very beginning. It's just not going to be effective and it's just going to be rubber stamping what people wanted to do anyway. And so it, it gets co-opted. That's one problem, but that's going to be true probably of how all decisions are made there, whether they're using experimentation to help evaluate the causal structure or any other decision is going to be highly politicized in that organization. So it's, it's, it's not going to be effective, but a lot of things aren't going to be effective in that organization. The second question, which is about, um, you know, sort of drilling in deeper and um, trying to find subsets, I think it's sort of a separate question, which is really more about not fully having the abstractions down about having asked the question. Yep before collecting the data. Now, I don't think there's any problem with drilling in to like do, finding segments and, and one, just to see whether or not there may be some data problem. Like, oh, is this consistent? Oh, why is it that these people are performing better? We wouldn't have expected that. So it can be useful on the analytics side, like the observational side to do that um, exercise, which is, hey, are there subsets that maybe this is effective for? But then... You haven't established a causal relationship between that subset and the treatment effect, but that's totally fine to do as long as, wait, one, as long as you know that and you go into it, your eyes wide open, it's like, yeah, we didn't really subject this to a severe test, but we got, you know, for whatever reason, we have to go with it anyway. And as long as everyone is aware of the risk, that's fine. You can, I mean, you don't have to be beholden to the results of the experimentation. You just have to be aware of what it's saying. And then it's up to you to make a decision. I mean, you're not, you don't want to be shackled by this thing. Then it just becomes part of the bureaucracy. And then it's like, no, the you know, computer said no, or computer said yes. You definitely don't want that. You still are autonomous. Um, but if you do want to establish that causal relationship, just run another experiment on that subset. Hey, let the, now we have um, a, an experiment we want to run just to confirm that this subset performs well. Um, that's fine. That's totally fine. Um, and there are ways of doing it. Like if you go into it, there are statistical methods. Like you know that you want to test this on different, you know, we, we kind of kicked that around, but there are methods, um, Benjamini, like, well, I don't want to get too technical, but th there are methods to try to account for the fact that you might find multiple results. I mean, really, there's multiple results that you want to find as opposed to just finding like the one result. So if, if you go into it and you kind of design it, you can kind of control for, um, you can adjust the, the significance level if you're using a frequentist approach for that. Then, you know, there are methods that, that can help mitigate, um, you know, just randomly finding some subset. 
But do you think there's room for serendipity here? Like if let, let's say you have a situation where where your initial question or initial hypothesis got like a non-result or, or or didn't get a conclusive result, but then by drilling into the data and segmenting in a certain way, you get a, a conclusive result. Do you think this is kind of the, the the results telling you that you asked the question wrong and you should have asked it like this is it, is it still a valid result when you're kind of retroactively changing the question just so that you can kind of get a conclusive result do, do you understand what i mean well you didn't get a conclusive result with respect to the causal question so you're but you have gotten a co- like uh, the correlation so when you start asking additional questions on top of the original question the the design the question that the experiment was designed around all you're doing is jumping from experimentation into analytics. So it's fine. But as long as you know that, it's like, okay, we, we're now going to like, we've collected this data and now we're just going to treat this data just like we normally do with our analytics data, which is going to be more correlational and not going to establish causal relationships. It might hint at causal relationships, but doesn't really, I shouldn't say establish, um, but help establish or help test for causal relationships, I should say. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And then you find, you maybe, oh, actually there is this result here. And that looks like there looks like there's some structure. There's some relationship between people who are on IE6 and performing very poorly on the, with the, the new treatment. And if IE6 users are a large enough share, you might ask, hey, what if we targeted, we developed new product around these folks? Let's run a quick experiment on some product that is of that class of products or services that we think they care about. And let's see if that performs better for them. And then you would run it. So it is this iterative approach and, and there's nothing wrong with that, what, what you're talking about. But I want to be clear, you're not getting, you're not going to find a confirmatory result, at least with respect to the causal question by doing that. It's just going to help provide, um, suggestions or ideas or indications that maybe there's a causal relationship right that so we to, want to test. reformulate the hypothesis in, a, in an additional experiment for example which is the whole right iterative approach that's the kernel of the thing that's exactly what you should be doing and whether you're using it in your testing tool or you're doing it in your analytics tool right. it doesn't matter it's just there these the two types of analysis that's all. And one is going to inform the other. And it's going to be this, hopefully, this iterative approach where we're right. constantly learning and improving. The, the, I mean, the, and I want to get to the, you know, you, you brought up the confirmatory result or statistical significance. It, at least in a frequentist test, there's really two types of error that we're controlling. Um, we're controlling false positives and false negatives, really. And the, there's a lot of confusion around the, the p-value and significance and whatever. And it's actually, I understand that because there's a, a, a counterintuitive um, logic there. But it isn't really that, but it's accessible to everyone. Really, anyone who runs, uses experimentation software, especially one that uses frequentist methods, I think should understand what the result is actually guaranteeing like what the what the statement actually is and and uh you know i'm happy to explain a p-value very quickly here um please do just conceptually the the p-value let's just use an analogy so um i used to live in manhattan so let's use that are most of your listeners in in europe or in finland no we, look, I would have i'm visiting finland I'm i have visiting, no idea I'm, I'm, vi- I'm visiting Helsinki, and, and I'm, I'm visiting SEMO. And there's a tram that runs through Helsinki. We, we, so SEMO and I are waiting for this tram, and we have to meet a, we have to meet a friend downtown. We're getting, we're getting drinks. We're, getting, we're all going to get a Similiak, Salmiak? What is that? that Salmiak. That, what is that? Salmiak, yeah. So we're going like, to have a great night drinking that. <laughs> And the friend that we're going to meet is, is a little uptight about people being late. Um, or I'm anxious about seeing this person. So anyway, we're waiting outside. The weather's kind of crappy. And the tram hasn't come. And we've now waited about 
15 minutes for the tram. And I start getting anxious. I'm not familiar with how the tram works. And I'm like, you know, it, it is in Finland, is it kind of like Japan and Germany where actually the trains are usually run tightly on the schedule? Or is it like a, another place where maybe it's much looser? Okay. So like, I kind of am not sure if the fact that we haven't seen the tram in 15 minutes means that maybe there's something wrong with the train system, right? So I asked Simo, I say, hey, Simo, I haven't seen the train in 15 minutes. Is this expected? Like, how often, if everything's working properly, right? I say, how, if, if the thing is running, how often do you have to wait 15 minutes or, or more? And Simo looks and sees how uptight I am. And he's a laid back guy and says, Matt, don't worry, don't worry about it. It probably about, you know, 20 or 30% of the time, you're going to have to wait at least 15 minutes or more. Okay. And then I relax because I'm like, oh, okay, this is consistent with the train system running on time. Okay. That is the, that's basically the logic of the p-value. The p-value is telling you what is the probability of seeing this result or greater. So like, for example, the difference in your treatment and the control, seeing that result or a bigger one, seeing like it, of this magnitude or more, given that there is no effect, right? Like really, the treatment and the control perform the same. And what's the likelihood of seeing this result if it is the case in this, the true state of the world, which we, we, we never know, right? But what's the likelihood of seeing this result if it were the case that they're the same? Okay, A and B are the same, the treatment and control are the same, which is analogous to my question about the train. I don't ask Simo, hey, when I relax, I don't know what the probability is of the train being late or the train's not working, like there's some major screw up and we have to go get a cab, or the things are working right. I don't have those probabilities. All I know is that this result is consistent with the trains working right. And that's the same thing with the p-value. It's, it's the probability of seeing this result or worse or greater, given that the null hypothesis is true, which is the same as the trains are running on time. The tra there's nothing wrong with the train system. A and B are the same. There is no, um, there is no difference. But what's the, the odds of seeing this result? Because the whole point of, you know, again, we're doing statistics, statistical inference, is we're, we're making probabilistic statement. This is not deterministic. It's probabilistic because we only get a sample of the world. We only have our, our, our observations, and then we're generalizing it into the larger world. So there's this source of uncertainty, this source of variability in the data that we're looking at where we're generating our hypotheses or our, 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 our results from. And so that's it. That's what the p-value is. It's like, it's like a test. It's like, hey, you know, this person says they did something great, but like if I just pick some random people who aren't artists, let's say it's like art, this is sort of a negative analogy, but you know, it's like, hey, I look, at, look at this masterpiece I just made. And then I just asked all these artists or these non-artists to, to create some art and it looks exactly the same. It's like, eh, maybe you're not that skilled because your result is consistent with someone who doesn't know what they're doing. So that's what the, the, the p-value is. And if it's a low value, it means this data has a very low probability of occurring when everything is the same. And so if it has a, such a low probability, then you might say, well, actually, that's very unlikely. So we're going to conclude um, the, the, the alternative. We're going to reject the null. We're going to reject that the null is true because it's very unlikely. And so we're going to pick the alternative. The world can be in two states. We don't know what state of the world is in. It can either be it is true that B is better than A, right? The treatment, the vaccine works. The vaccine is more efficacy than the placebo. Or it could be it's not true. Uh, but we don't, unless we have a probability, unless we have a probability about what beforehand, what state of the world is more likely than the other, all we have is just this data and this likelihood about how likely this data is given we're in one state or the other. And that's different from the, the Bayesian. What the Bayesian approach does is that it does assign this probability of what state of the world we're in. It's like, yeah, but I know it's super, super, super unlikely for the trains ever to have a problem. Or it's like, eh, actually, these trains are always 
breaking. So it's going to be more likely that the, if we see this, this result, that the trains are broken or it's less likely. So really all the Bayesian approach, I don't want to say all, but one way to think about it is that the Bayesian approach is weighting those two states of the world so that we can output probabilities about each of the results. Unlike the frequentist approach, where it's all it's telling us is the likelihood of seeing this data given that the null is true and the null being that A and B are the same. That's, that's how it works. And I think it is useful to spend a little bit of time grokking that, especially if you're running experiments, especially, you know, because that's the results you're getting. It's going to output those results for you. And so it's, I think it's useful to understand the abstraction on what it's really saying. Right. Um, and it's, it's that P value is the probability is also the probability that you're going to make a type one error, which is, I will say that the treatment is effective when actually it isn't effective, right? right? Because if the null is true, I have a 5% chance of saying that the treatment is better when it actually isn't any better, right? And so if I see that result 5% of the time, 5% of the time under the null, I'm going to pick I'm going to pick it when it is not actually the case. So that's like your type 1 error. And the type 2 error is more like opportunity cost. It's like, well, actually B is better than A, but again, we get probabilistic results and due to just sampling variation, it may be that it looks like B doesn't have enough, isn't big enough for us to conclude, isn't different enough for us to conclude that it's different from A. And then we stay with A, but really we should have gone with B if, if we knew the true state of the world because B is actually better. And that's the type 2 error. And that's opportunity cost. So are accounting for these errors, is that just a like risk assessment when you're designing experiments? Do you need to account for these types of errors to emerge? Well, yeah, that's why you're running, in a way, in, from a decision theoretic approach, um, that's part of the design of the experiment. It's to specify, like, you, you can kind of think of the test that you're going to run as, like, a magnifying glass, and you're saying, well, how, what's the resolution? Like, how much, like, what, what's the, the difference in effect that actually I care about has meaning to us? And so, like, for the efficacy of the vaccine, I think they wanted it to be at least 50%. Like they, they wanted to, to mitigate 50% of the severe disease. And so the, the number of samples that were collected gave you enough information. So there is this one way to think about it. You know, when I said we're, we're collecting data, really data is like the cost of the experiment. So we're going to collect data and each data point provides a bit of information for help, helping us answer our question to reduce our uncertainty. So the larger the sample we take, the less uncertainty we have in our results and our estimates. And so there's this trade-off between larger sample size, which is cost, and uncertainty or precision of our estimates or of our test. And so that trade-off is what we're going to be making when we say, I want this test to be at a 5% level or a 1% level or 0.01% level. As you lower the p-value that you need or you, you say, I want this at a 99% or 99% significance level versus 95, you need more and more data. There's diminishing returns to data in order to achieve a test that has that precision or is more severe. You're, in, you're making it harder in a way. Um, to make a type one error. And so that requires more resources. So it's really in a way a resource allocation pro problem. And that's part of being, um, having the experience or the, the, the skill set of, of the person running the experiment is these trade-offs between the probability of making a false positive, the probability of making a false negative, the, the resolution of the test, which is known as the minimum detectable effect, like what's, like what's an important resolution, and the sample size. And those, those, any one of those can be determined by the other, th other three. Right. It's almost like a sample complexity question 
It's like what what's the what's the amount of samples that I need to answer this question with this probability. I th- I think that before I let you go, I do want to invite you to a little thought experiment here. Um, let, I'm I'm going to give you godlike powers for 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 now, and at the snap of your fingers, you can you can inject a specific skill or technological know-how into all the decision makers of all the organizations in the world, for example, or the people you interact with as as a representative of Conductrix, in order to make the organization more susceptible to experimentation and to understand statistical inference better. What would that skill or tech be? What would you inject into the people running in these organizations in order to make those organizations more sensitive to data, for example? Oh, with all the anti-vax going on, I don't know if you should use the term inject into people. I, <laughs> that's think I, don't, that's, that's, <laughs> I don't want to inject anything into um, to people. Well, you know, I think, um, I, I, I guess I would, you know, Look, there's a lot of different roles out there, and it really is, you know, it, if we're going to say everybody, you know, that, that that's really going to depend. Like, if I was working for Anna Wintour, I, I think editorial and understanding of fashion would be more important than anything I'm talking about here. So I think let's just constrain it to to, to the analysts, like people who are, are um, you know, working. I would say just sort of the... Certain, I, I think, uh, I think it goes in tandem. And I would say one of the places I think the, the industry or people in analytics, uh, it, at least in our subset, there might be value is in maybe a greater balance in abstractions along with sort of the concrete tooling and not get our abstractions in the way we think about problems from the tools. Because I think that's limiting. Um, and I would say, one, useful to have a high-level understanding of actually what we're doing. Um, and I don't mean that in like a pejorative or a way, but I mean like the limitations of statistical inference and the fact that we are making our, our learning is sort of probabilistic. There's uncertainty in, in, in how we're learning. And so like the, the fact that we are um, making statements about the general world, we're generalizing from observation from a subset of data, which is, has certain constraints to it, to that type of learning. That's the best we can do. And I would say as the analyst, um, you know, earlier before the call, you had mentioned, you know, SQL and whatnot. I, I would say what would be useful is decision-making at the margin. I would say that would be a key useful um, skill or way of thinking about the world that I think would help, I think is helpful for analysts, is thinking at the margin and asking Asking things about what the the marginal efficacy is um, of something. So decision making at the margin is this even worth it? Is this enterprise worth it? Is is for our use case is analytics worth it? Is anything anything is worth it um, versus the cost of doing the thing? So decision making at the margin, I think, would be a a good skill set, which you know many folks have. But I, I guess I would say, new people coming into the field. I don't want to speak for people who have been here for quite some time. Um, but I would say pe- people coming in and just thinking about things at the margin and having a good appreciation for statistical inference and, and its limitations. But unlike analytics, where we might be more descriptive, we're just describing behavior that we've seen versus inference, where we're trying to make general rules about the world we haven't seen yet and the limitations of doing that. Thanks, Matt. It's been enlightening as always. Um, if folks find, and it's not a question of if, when folks find this this um, topic of interest and, and want to learn about more more about this, well, Matt's written a lot of really great content on the Conductrix blog, so that's one place to take a look at. Where else would you say people should look into if they want to follow what you what you write about, what you talk about, what you present? 
Well, what I can do is um, send over a list. I don't know, Simo, do you have a a place on the podcast? Yeah, page we have shown that has. Yeah. Yeah. So what I can do is I can I can send over a list of um, what I think are useful resources. Um, that would be great for folks to to poke poke around at. I think that would be that's useful. That would be absolutely great. Thank you. Um, and I'm I, I listened to your analogy about the trams in Helsinki wistfully, thinking that maybe someday we'll have a time when we'll actually have meet up for drinks in Helsinki again, and um, hopefully uh, see a return to normalcy. But this podcast itself was um, a nice, nice way of looking at things and having an expert of your caliber here talking about experimentation for our public is certainly a very nice thing to experience. So thank you very much for that, Matt. Well, thank you very much. And that was very kind of you to say. And it's, it's always a pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon. Peace. Thank you, Matt Gershoff of Conductrix for that interview. As always, remember to check out the show notes for references and a topic index of this podcast. And we'll return in a couple of weeks time with the next episode. Until then, take care.